Chapter 14 of For the Temple, A Tale of the Fall of Jerusalem by G.A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dory Smith. Chapter 14, Jerusalem. Mingling with the crowd, John and his followers made their way through the Damascus Gate into Jerusalem and followed the Damascus Street to the Gate of Ephraim. An air of somber misery pervaded the whole population. In their hearts, the greater portion of the population had, for many months, been longing for the approach of the Romans. Even death would be preferable to the misery which they suffered. There were but few people in the streets, for all remained in their houses with closed doors, save when necessity drove them out to make purchases. Turning sharp round by the wall, the members of the band made their way along it until they were met by one or other of those who had gone on in advance and were conducted to the house which had been hired for them. The inhabitants of the houses near looked out of their windows in alarm when they saw so many armed men arriving, but they gained courage on observing their quiet and orderly demeanor, and doors were presently unbolted, and men came out to inquire who were the newcomers. When they were told that they were from Galilee and Perea, and had come down only to fight for the holy city, that they would harm no one and had nothing in common with any of the factions, Confidence was restored, and officers were at once made to take in ten, fifteen, or twenty men, according to the size of the houses. For the people soon saw that the new arrivals would prove a protection from the attacks and insults of small numbers of Simon's men, who had hitherto pervaded the lower town, breaking into houses, robbing and murdering wheresoever they chose. The grain was all stored in the houses that had been hired, and here John took up his quarters with the men of his own company and those of Asher, one of his bravest and most determined captains. The rest were all accommodated in houses in the same street. And as this, like most of the streets of Jerusalem, was very narrow, John felt that it could be defended against an attack by a greatly superior force. It was but half an hour after the band had been settled in their quarters that a shriek was heard at the end of the street. John ran out in time to see a woman struck down, while a body of some twenty half-drunken soldiers with drawn swords were trying to force in the doors of a house. John sounded his bugle, and there was a rush of armed men into the street. John put himself at the head of the two companies with him and advanced against the soldiers and sternly ordered them to desist. The soldiers, astonished by the sudden appearance of so large a body of armed men, drew back in astonishment. "'Who are you?' one who seemed to be their leader asked. It matters not who I am, John said quietly. It is enough, as you see, that I have a force here sufficiently strong enough to make myself obeyed. This street henceforth is mine, and beware of attempting plunder or violence here, for whoever does so surely dies. Muttering threats below their breath, the soldiers suddenly withdrew. An hour later, one of the inhabitants ran in to inform John that a large body of men were coming down from the upper city. John immediately called his men to arms and at their head, took up his position at the end of the street. Ere long, a crowd of soldiers were seen approaching. At their heads strode one whom John at once guessed to be Simon himself. When he arrived within ten paces, Simon stopped, surprised at the compact order and resolute appearance of the band which filled the street. "'Who are you?' he asked John imperiously. "'My name is John, and I am generally called John of Gamala, although that is not my birthplace.' Simon uttered an exclamation of astonishment, for the tales of John's attack upon the Roman camp at Gamala and of his subsequent actions against the Romans were well known in Jerusalem. You are but a lad, Simon said contemptuously, 
and John of Gamala must be a warrior. I am John of Gamala, John repeated quietly, and these men are part of my band. We have come down to defend Jerusalem since there is no more to be done in the open country. We wish to interfere with none, to take part with no faction, but simply to defend the city. We war with the Romans and not with Jews. We assault no one, but woe be to him who assaults us. Here are 600 of us, each man ready to die. And though you have 20 men to one, yet we will withstand you if you meddle with us. By tonight, the Romans will be outside the walls. Is this the time that Jews should fall upon each other like wild beasts? Simon hesitated. The idea of opposition excited him, as usual, to fury. But upon the other hand, he saw that this determined body were not to be overcome, save with great loss, and he wanted his men for his struggles with the zealots. You are not in correspondence with John of Gishala, he asked doubtfully. I am in correspondence with no one, John said. As I have told you, we come only to fight for Jerusalem and will take no part on one side or other in your dissensions. We have taken up this street between this gate and the corner gate, and this street we will hold. Simon still hesitated. He saw that, round this nucleus of determined men, the whole of the citizens of the lower town might gather, and that he might be forced to confine himself to the upper town. This, however, would be of no great importance now. The inner lower town was the poor quarter of Jerusalem. Here dwelt the artisans and mechanics in the narrow and tortuous lanes, while the wealthier classes resided either in the upper town, where stood the palaces of the great, or in the new town, between the second and third walls. The new town had indeed until lately been a suburb outside the walls. Agrippa had begun the third wall, which was to enclose this, and had he been allowed to build it according to his design, he would have made Jerusalem absolutely impregnable save by famine. But the authorities at Rome, knowing how turbulent were the population of Jerusalem, and foreseeing that at some time they might have to lay siege to the city, had forbidden its construction, and the new wall had been hastily erected by the Jews themselves after they had risen and defeated Cestius four years before. This wall enclosed a vast number of villas with gardens and open spaces, now thickly tenanted by the temporary habitations of the fugitives and pilgrims. The lower town then contained but little to tempt the cupidity of Simon's troops, its houses had, indeed, been ransacked over and over again, and Simon reflected that, even should his men be prevented from descending into it, it would matter but very little, as it was separated from the upper town by the Teropian Valley, and the first wall, no rising there, could be a formidable danger to him. Still, it galled him to be resisted, and, had it not been that the Romans were close at hand, he would at once have given his men orders to attack the strangers. He stood for some minutes, stroking his beard, and then said, I will give you no answer now. I will think over what you say till tomorrow. Then we will talk again. I doubt not what your decision will be, John said. You are a brave man, Simon, and although you have done much harm to the Jews, yet I know that you will defend Jerusalem to the end against the Romans. You need feel no jealousy of me. I aspire to no leadership or power. I am here only to fight, and six hundred such men as mine are not to be despised in the day of trial. Should the Romans march away baffled before the walls, I too shall leave, and you who remain can resume your mad struggles, if you will. But I think that in the presence of the enemy all strife within the city should cease, and that we should be as one man in the face of the Romans. Simon looked with surprise and some admiration at the young man who so boldly addressed him. 
savage and cruel as he was simon was a man of the greatest bravery he had none of the duplicity and treachery which characterized john of Gishala, but was straightforward and in his way honest as only his picture has come down to us as described by the pen of josephus who at the time of his writing his history had become thoroughly a roman and who elevated titus and his troops at the expense of his own countrymen great allowance must be made for the dark colors in which he is painted the fact that he was regarded with affection and devotion by his troops who were willing to go to certain death at his orders shows that at least there must have been many good qualities in him and history records no instance of more desperate and sustained bravery than he exhibited in defense of jerusalem the frankness of john's speech instead of angering him pleased him much enough he said i need no further time to reflect a man who had thought of treachery would not speak so boldly and fearlessly as you do. let us be friends i have often wondered what sort of man was the john of gamala of whom i have heard so much and who has so long kept the field against the romans and although i wondered greatly at seeing you so young a man yet i rejoice that so valiant a fighter should be here to aid us in this struggle here is my hand in token of amity john took the hand held out to him and a shout of satisfaction rose from the armed men on either side the followers of john being rejoiced that they would not be called upon to engage in civil strife those of simon well satisfied that they were not called upon to attack a body of men who looked such formidable antagonists just at this moment a man rode in the gate saying that the romans were but two miles distant and would speedily make their appearance over the hill of scopus simon ordered a party of his men to proceed at once to damascus gate and to close it as soon as the romans were visible then he turned again to john come with me he said to the palace of herod from its summit we can see the enemy approaching giving orders to his men to lay aside their arms and calling jonas to accompany him john without hesitation turned to accompany simon the latter had hardly expected him to accept his invitation, and the readiness with which he did so at once pleased and gratified him. It was proof of fearlessness, and a testimony to John's belief in his faith and honor. John of Gishala, treacherous himself, would not have placed himself in his power, whatever the guarantee he gave for his safety, while he himself would not have confided himself to John of Gishala, though the latter had sworn to his safety with his hand on the altar. John himself, was struck with the rugged grandeur of simon's appearance he was far above the stature of ordinary men and of immense strength and there was nevertheless an ease and lightness in his carriage which showed that he was no less active than strong his face was leonine in expression his long hair fell back from his forehead his eyebrows were heavy his eyes were gray and clear with a fierce and savage expression when his brows met in a frown and his lips were firmly set but at other times frank open and straightforward in their look the mouth was set and determined, without being hard, and a pleasant smile at times lit up his features. He was a man capable of strong affections and generous impulses. He was cruel at times, but it was an age of cruelty, and Titus himself, who is held up as a magnanimous general, was guilty of far more hideous cruelties than any committed by Simon. Had the latter been master of Jerusalem from the first, and had not the granaries been destroyed in the Civil War, the legions of Titus would never have achieved the conquest of the city. Ascending the steep slope of the valley, they passed through the gate in the first wall and, turning to the right, entered the palace of Herod, which was at once a royal dwelling and a fortress of tremendous strength. 
much as John's thoughts were otherwise occupied, he could not help being struck by the magnificence and splendor of this noble building. But he said nothing as Simon strode along through the forum, passed out beyond the palace itself, entered the strong and lofty tower of Phasaelus, and ascended to its summit. An involuntary exclamation burst from John as he gained the platform. From the point on which he stood, he commanded a view of the whole city and of the country round. Far below, at his feet, lay the crowded streets of the inner town, between which and the outer wall the ground was thickly occupied by houses of the better class, standing half embowered in trees. Close beside him rose the stately towers of Hippicus and Mariamne. Behind him was the palace of Herod, standing on the ground once occupied by the castle of David. On the east, the palace of Agrippa partly obscured the view of the temple, but a portion of the building could be seen standing on its platform on the summit of Mount Toriah. To its left and connected with it by two lines of cloisters was the castle of Antonia, while still further along was the fort known as Acre. Behind the palace of Herod and its superb gardens were scattered the palaces and mansions of the wealthy Jews and strangers which, with their gardens, occupied the whole of the upper part of Mount Zion. On the lower slope of Mount Moriah, lying between the valley of Jehoshaphat and that of the Tyropian, was a densely populated suburb known as the New Town. Westward, beyond the Tower of Hippicus, lay the Valley of Hinnom, with the dragon pole glistening in the sun, while, at a distance of four or five miles to the southward, could be seen the village of Bethlehem. The whole country outside the walls was a garden, with countless villas, mansions, and groves of trees. For some minutes John looked round in admiration of the scene, while Simon stood with his eyes fixed upon the road crossing Mount Scopus. Suddenly he uttered an exclamation, and John joined him, and looked in the direction in which he was gazing. The white line of the road was darkened by a moving mass, sparkling as the sun shone on arms and armor. They come at last, Simon said, and as he spoke, cries of wailing and lamentations were heard from the walls far below them. The four years that had elapsed since danger first threatened Jerusalem had deepened the impression in the minds of the Jews that the enemy would not be permitted to approach the holy city. It was true that their faith had been sorely shaken by many strange prodigies. A strange light had shone about the altar and the temple, and it was said that voices had been heard from the Holy of Holies saying, Let us depart hence. The beautiful gate at the temple, which required the strength of twenty men to close it, had opened of its own accord. War chariots and armies had been seen contending in the clouds, and for months a great comet, in shape like a flaming sword, had hung over the city. Still men had hoped, and the cry from the watchers that the Roman army was in sight struck dismay among the inhabitants. There were still many without the walls. Some of these rushed wildly into the gates and entered the city, while the wiser fled away to the hills and made their way to their homes. Titus, as he reached the brow of Mount Scopus, reined in his horse and looked for some time in silence at the great and magnificent city which extended before him, and there can be little doubt that he would fain have spared it, had it been possible. Even a Roman could not gaze on the massive beauty of the temple unmoved. It was the most famous religious edifice in the world. From all parts, pilgrims flocked to it, and kings made offerings to it. It was believed by the Jews to be the special seat of their deity, and the Romans, partly from policy, partly from superstition, paid respect and reverence to the gods of all the nations they subdued, and annual offerings had been sent by Rome to the temple. Titus may well have wished to spare the city the ruin and misery of a siege, to preserve the temple intact, 
and to hand over to King Agrippa, uninjured, his palace and capital. In all the wide dominions of Rome, there was not a city which approached Jerusalem in beauty and grandeur, and Titus must have felt that whatever honor would accrue to him from its conquest would be dearly purchased by the linking of his name to all time as the destroyer of so magnificent a city. Similar emotions were felt by the group of officers who rode with Titus and who reined up their horses as he did so. With them, the military point of view was doubtless the most prominent, as they saw from their lofty vantage ground how the deep valleys of Hinman and Jehoshaphat girt the city in on either side, and how stately and strong were the walls and towers. They may well have felt how mighty was the task which they had before them. The scene was calm and peaceful. No sound of warlike trumpets came from the walls. No sign of an enemy appeared without. And Titus rode on past the deserted villas and beautiful grounds that bordered the road until he neared the Damascus Gate. He was accompanied by six hundred horse, for the legions had encamped in the Valley of Thorns, near the village of Gaboth Saul, some four miles from Jerusalem. The walls appeared deserted, but Titus, having experience of the desperate courage of the Jews, paused at some little distance from the gate and, turning to the right, entered a lane which ran parallel to the wall, and made his way toward the Tower of Sephinus, or the Rubble Tower, at the northeastern angle of the outer wall. Suddenly, a gate near the Tower of Women was thrown open, and a crowd of armed men dashed out. Rushing forward at the top of their speed, some threw themselves across the road which Titus was following, but most of them rushed in behind him, cutting him off from the main body of his cavalry and leaving him isolated with but a few followers. The main body of the Roman cavalry, furiously assailed and ignorant that Titus was cut off from them, turned and fled. Titus hesitated a moment. In front of him was an unknown country. He knew not whither the lane he was following led. Hedges rose on either side, and even did he burst through the crowds in front of him, he might be overwhelmed by missiles as he rode on. Therefore, calling upon his men to follow him, he turned round and dashed into the crowd which barred his retreat. He wore neither helmet nor breastplate, for, as he had only advanced to reconnoiter and with no thought of fighting, these had been left behind. Yet, Though javelins flew round him in showers and arrows whizzed close to him, not one touched him as he struck right and left among those who barred his passage, while his war-horse, excited by the shouts and tumult, trampled them under his feet. In vain the Jews, astonished at his bravery, and still more so at his immunity from harm amid the shower of missiles, strove to seize him. He and his little band cut his way onward, those in front drawing back with almost superstitious fear from his attack. Two only of his followers were slain. One fell, pierced with numerous javelins. Another was pulled from his horse and killed, but with the rest he emerged unharmed from among his assailants and reached his camp in safety. The soldiers of Simon, for it was his men who guarded this part of the wall, returned with mingled feelings. They were triumphant that they had caused a son of Caesar himself to fly before them. They were humiliated that so great a prize should have escaped them when he seemed in their hands and they had a superstitious feeling that he had been divinely protected from their assaults. From their lookout, Simon and John had seen the Roman cavalry turn off from the Damascus road into the lane and had then lost sight of them. Then they heard the sudden din of battle and the shouts of the combatants and saw the Roman cavalry riding off in full speed but the clamor had continued, and in short time another little party of horsemen were seen to issue from the lane and follow their companions. 
Simon laughed grimly. We have taught the Romans early that the wasps have stings and that if they think they're going to take the nest without troubles, they will be mistaken. And now, John, what do you advise? You were, they say, at Jatapada and Gamala, and you have since shown how well you understand the Roman tactics. I am a soldier with an arm to strike, but so far I have not had experience in the Roman tactics at sieges. Tell me, what would you do first were you commander of this city? There is no doubt what is the first thing to be done, John said. It is the duty of all within this city to lay aside their feuds and unite in her defense. It is for you, as the strongest, to make the first advance and to send at once to John and Eliezer to propose that, so long as the Romans are before the city, there shall be a truce between you and to arrange which part of the wall shall be held by the soldiers of each. You must also arrange to unite for common action, both in the defense and in attacking them without the walls, for it is only by disturbing them at their work and by hindering them as they bring forward their engines of war that you can hope to hold the city. Strong as your walls may be, they will crumble to ruins when the battering rams once begin their work against them. Simon was silent for a minute. Then he said, Your advice is good. I will send at once to John and Eliezer and ask them to meet me at the bridge across the Tyropian, which separates our forces. The sun was already setting, but the distance was short. Simon advanced to the bridge and, hailing the zealots on the other side, said that he desired an interview with John in reference to the defense of the city and that he pledged his solemn oath that no harm should come to him. He sent a similar message to Eliezer. John shortly appeared for, from the summit of Antonia, he too had watched the advancing Romans and felt the necessity for common action for defense of the town. Eliezer refused to come. He would have trusted Simon, but to reach the meeting place he would have to pass through the outer courts of the temple held by John, and he knew that no confidence could be reposed in any oath that the latter might take. He sent word, however, that he was willing to abstain from all hostilities and to make common cause with the others for the defense of the city. John of Gishala advanced alone onto the bridge, a wide and stately edifice carried on lofty arches across the Tyropian Valley from a point near the palace of Agrippa to the platform of the temple. Come with me, Simon said to his companion. John of Gishala paused in his advance as he saw that Simon was not alone. Let one of your men come with you, if you like, Simon said with a grim laugh at his hesitation, or two or six, if you like. But John of Gishala knew that the eyes of the soldiers on both sides of the bridge were upon him, and, having faith in the oath of Simon, he again advanced. John looked with curiosity at the man of whom he had heard so much, and who, having been a scourge to Upper Galilee with his horde of robbers, had now brought such misery upon Jerusalem. Without approaching his rival in size and strength, John of Gishala was a powerfully built man. He did not shrink from danger and had upon occasion shown great bravery, but he relied upon craft more than force to gain his ends. He possessed great power of oratory, could rouse men's passions or calm them at will. He could cajole or threaten, persuade or deceive with equal facility, was always ready to break an oath if it was inconvenient to keep it. Although fond of power, he was still more greedy of gain. But in one respect, he and Simon agreed. Both hated the Romans with an intense and bitter hatred. Both were ready to die in defense of Jerusalem. I think it is time, John, Simon said, to cease from our strife for the present and to make common cause against the enemy. If we continue our dissensions and the Romans in consequence take the city, 
our names will be accursed in all generations as the men who gave Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. I am ready to agree to a truce, John of Geshala said. It is you who have been attacking me, not I who have been attacking you. But we need not talk of that now. Is it to be an understood thing that, if the Romans retire, we shall both occupy the positions we now hold, whatever changes may have taken place, and we can then either come to an understanding or fight the matter out? Yes, that is what I would propose, Simon replied. Whatever changes may take place, when the Romans retire, we occupy exactly the positions we hold now. Will you swear to that by the temple? I will, John said. The two men each took a solemn oath to carry out the terms they agreed upon and, throughout the siege, to put aside all enmity toward each other and to act together in all things for the defense of the city. They then arranged as to the portion of the wall which each should occupy, these corresponding very nearly to the lines which they at present held. Simon held the whole of the third wall which, commencing from Hippicus, the tower at the north corner of the high town, ran northward to Cephenus, or the rubble tower, then eastward to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and again south to the temple platform. The second wall, enclosing the inner low town, or inner Acre, as it was sometimes called, was divided between the two. Simon also held the first wall, from Hippicus right round at the foot of Zion across the lower end of the Teropian valley, and round the outer low town as far as the platform of the temple. John held the temple platform, the middle low town, and some parts of the city immediately adjacent, both on the south slope of Mount Moriah, or Ophel, as this portion of the hill was called, and part of the inner low town. The line, therefore, which Simon had to defend was vastly greater than that held by John's troops, but, in fact, the whole line bordering the valleys of Hinman and Jehoshaphat was practically unassailable, the wall being built along the edge of precipices, where it could not be attacked either with battering rams or by escalade, and it was really the north face of the city only that was exposed to serious assault. The outer wall on this side, that against which the assault would first be made, was entirely occupied by Simon's troops, but it was not anticipated that any successful resistance could be made here, for the walls, hastily raised by the Jews after turning out the Romans, were incapable of offering a long resistance to such a force as was now to assail it. It was then at the second wall that the first great stand would be made, and John and Simon's troops divided this between them, so that the division was fair enough when it was considered that Simon's force was more than double that of John. When this matter had been arranged, John of Geshala said to Simon, Who is this young man who accompanies you? He is one who has done much more for the cause than either you or I, John of Geshala, and indeed, hitherto it may be doubted whether we have not been the two worst enemies of Jerusalem. This is John of Gamala, of whom we have heard so often during the last three years. This? John of Gamala? John repeated in a tone of incredulity. You are mocking me, Simon. I mock no one, Simon said sternly. I tell you, this is John of Gamala, and when we think that you and I, men of war, have as yet struck no single blow against the Romans since I aided in the defeat of the legions of Cestius, for you fled from Geshala like a coward at night, while I have been fighting for my own land down here, we may well feel ashamed, both of us, in the presence of this youth, who has for three years harassed the Romans, 
burning their camps, driving out small garrisons, hindering pillagers from straying over the country, cutting off their convoys, and forcing them to keep ever on the watch. I tell you, John, I feel ashamed beside him. He has brought here 600 men of his band, all picked and determined fellows for the defense of the city. I tell you, they will be no mean assistance. And you would say so also had you seen how they drew up today in solid order, ready to withstand the whole of my force. He is not of my party or of yours. He comes simply to fight against the Romans, and, as I understand him, when the Romans retire, he will leave also. That is certainly my intention, John said quietly, but before I go, I hope that I shall be able to act as mediator between you both and to persuade you to come to some arrangement which may free Jerusalem from a renewal of the evils which, between you, you have inflicted upon her. If you beat back the Romans, you will have gained all the honor that men could desire, and your names will go down to all posterity as the saviors of Jerusalem and the temple. If you desire treasure, there is not a Jew but that will be ready to contribute to the utmost of his power. If you desire power, Palestine is wide enough for you to divide it between you. Only beware, lest by striving longer against each other, your names go down as those who have been the tyrants of the land, names to be accursed as long as the Hebrew tongue remains. The two men were silent. Bold as they were, they felt abashed before the outspoken rebuke of this stripling. They had heard him spoken of as one under the special protection of Jehovah. They knew that he had had marvelous escapes and that he had fought single-handed with Titus and the air of authority with which he spoke, his entire disregard of their power, his fearlessness in the presence of men before whom all Jerusalem trembled, confirmed the stories they had heard and created an impression almost to awe. If we three are alive, when the Romans depart from before the city, Simon said in his deep voice, it shall be as you say and I bind myself beforehand to agree to whatever you shall decide is just and right. Therefore, John of Geshala, henceforth I shall regard this not as a truce, but as the beginning of peace between us, and our rivalry shall be who shall best defend the holy city against her foes. So be it, John of Geshala replied, but I would that Eliezer were here. He is an enemy in my midst, and just as whenever I was fighting with you, he fell upon me from behind, so it will be that, while I am struggling with the Romans, he may be attacking me from the inner temple. He has none of the outer walls to defend and will therefore be free to choose the moment when he can fall upon me unawares. Make peace with him at any price, John said. Only put an end to this strife and let there be no more bloodshed in the temple. How can we hope for God's assistance in defending the city when his altars are being daily desecrated with blood? I will see what I can do, John said. Somehow or other, this strife must be brought to an end, and it shall be done without bloodshed, if possible. There is another thing, John, Simon said. Our comrade here has been telling me that, from what he saw at Jatapada and Gamala, he is convinced that by passive resistance only, we cannot defeat the Romans, but that we must sally out and attack them in their camps and at their work, and therefore let us agree that we will meet here from time to time and arrange that issuing together through the gates in our portions of the wall, we may unite in falling upon the Romans. The council is good, John of Geshala said. It will keep up the courage of the men to fight in the open. Whenever an opportunity presents itself, my men shall act with yours. You have given Titus a lesson today. The next time we will divide the honor. End of chapter 14, recording by Dory Smith.